when we have a visitor, make it a point to speak to them and welcome them to come back. It's not that hard to do. It's easy for us to visit with our friends and ignore our visitors. We visited the Bishop Utzer's church in Richmond, Virginia, when my son was in medical school there. And uh, we were so entertained by the people who welcomed us we could hardly get away from the church. And I said to him, that's the, one of the friendliest churches I've attended. And he said, I'm glad to hear you say that because when I went there, it was the coldest church. But we designed a plan. Every person was to check the register on the pew on which they were sitting. They were to greet every person who was a visitor and introduce them to someone else. That person, in turn, introduced them to someone else until the person had met everyone that was within reach. And we felt so warm and welcome. And knowing that it was just a process through which they were going took away a little of it, but for the visitor who goes through it, there's no way of knowing that it isn't just genuine feeling and knowledge. I want people, Bill Bailey died last week, and he was a church member of mine at First Church. Bill and Elizabeth visited us at Newport. We gave carnations to every visitor. And Elizabeth wrote me a note and said, save your money on your carnations. We couldn't get out for people coming by and welcoming us. Even one person invited me to come to the United Methodist Women. She said, that's the friendliest church I was ever in. And it was. And we didn't program anything. People were just that loving and caring. If James, the brother of Jesus, had not written his letter, which is included in the New Testament, chances are there would never have been a Protestant church. Paul said, there is justification by faith alone. In his letter to Rome, which we're studying now, Paul went to great lengths to point out that every one of us is a sinner and so far from God's ideal for us that we can't breach that chasm. There's no way that we can merit God's love and favor. But God loves us more than we could ever possibly love him. So he devised the means whereby we could be reconciled to him even though we cannot become worthy. God through Christ, extended to us grace, which is reflective of his love, which says that through his grace, we can be absolved of all sins that we have ever committed. We are justified by our faith in God's grace. And that's all that we need in order to be reconciled to God just to accept God's grace through faith. Paul said, if we did it by our own merit, then God's grace would not be unmerited grace. And God's grace is unmerited, must be seen as unmerited, so that we not take pride in the fact, God has given me nothing, I have earned what I got from him. 
Paul made a very strong appeal to us to realize that it is not because of our because of our worthiness that we are reconciled to God. It is in our unworthiness, God, grace unmerited, accepts us through justification. Now, works don't fit in there at all. Paul makes it a point in today's lesson say that if you try to rely on works, then you take pride in the works that would justify you before God. Forget works. It is by faith and faith alone. Now, it is through Christ that this grace is administered to us, is made available to us. We're standing on the age of Good Friday, in which we celebrate the fact that it is through the death of Christ that God's grace has come into the world through his sacrifice we have that unmerited grace. Now, the lesson writer made it a point that we do not understand how the death of Christ brought this about. Theologians have tried to devise thought patterns by which we can lay hold upon the fact that through this act of love, we are reconciled to God. And you're familiar with them. They're the classic explanations. One is that Satan holds us all in his power. Sin is so great on earth that not one of us escapes the tentacles of sin. And it is Satan that holds us in his power. God paid a ransom to free us from the tentacles of Satan. It's a ransom theory that God gave his son to ransom us from Satan. Now, there are weaknesses to that. You can see them readily. So there are others who came along and said, God has demanded sacrifice from the very beginning for our sins. In the Old Testament, everything is sacrificial. Everything is built around sacrificing to God. And so all of humanity caught up in the throes of sin then has to make a sacrifice for those sins. And there is no sacrifice equal to our sins. So God sacrificed his own son for our sins. And that's the sacrificial theory of the atonement. You see the weaknesses in that as well. Another theory that has been brought forth is the fact that we must pay for our sins. And we can't sin and get away with it. We must pay for them. And for the sins that we have committed, so gross and so many, only death will satisfy payment for our sins. And so God substituted his son for us who should have died. He died instead so that we would not have to. And these are the three main theories that have been developed since the beginning of the early church explaining the atonement. I don't accept any of the three. They do really speak in my heart to what God did through Christ. You can survey these and many others and come to an understanding. But no matter where we go and how we approach it, we all come to the point of this recognition. 
I don't know how it was brought about, but I do know that it happened. Because Christ died, God's grace was administered to us, and in that grace, unmerited, no way that we can earn it, through that grace, then we can find all of our sins as though we had never sinned, a clean slate before God, totally reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. That's the importance of Christ in our religion. We talk about the great religions of the world, and they are powerful, mighty, and in many ways, they fill the need for those who subscribe to these other religions, and God will deal with them in his way. But only we have the one to open the door of unmerited grace that we would be reconciled to God, not because of what we do, but what Christ did. That's the good news of Good Friday. And that's what Paul said in his letter to the church at Rome. We are reconciled to God by faith through his grace. We are justified by faith alone. Now, of course, in order for that grace to apply to us individually, it isn't a blanket gift of God. He doesn't throw that grace as a dew at night over all the world, and everyone awakens having realized the gift of God through Christ. It is something that we must accept individually. Something can be given to you, but until you accept it, it's not yours. Nancy's daughter, Hannah, was 16 yesterday. And she found a brand new car in her driveway. But until she gets the keys, that car's not going to be a bit of good <laughs> And that's God's gift. Until we accept the key, we have no boast in what Christ has done for us. And that key is repentance. Hammer that word in your mind and hammer it deeply. Repentance is so important in our relationship with Christ. We have to regret having displeased God. We can't take his gift of forgiveness as long as we cherish what has separated us? We must say, I'm sorry, and I'm not going to do it again. How many times we've said that to our parents in growing up? How many times it's necessary to say, I'm sorry, and I won't do it again. It's repentance. We must realize that we're in need of repentance. How many times I have heard it said, I don't go to church because I'm just as good as the people who go there. And better than most. But it's a matter of being good. It's a matter of recognizing the fact that we are all sinners before God. And there is no qualitative manner in which we can judge ourselves <laughs> by others in the sight of God. We are all individually in need of God's love and forgiveness. And we have to recognize that. We must say, I have sinned. And falling short. And I'm sorry. And I want to accept your forgiveness. And then we have to do the one thing that Paul 
didn't say, we've got to do something about it. And here's where the division comes between James and Paul. James said, and shame on him for saying it. You cannot be justified by faith without works. And you can't have both. You can't say I am saved by faith and works because the two are incompatible in God's forgiveness. You've got faith but not enough works. You've got works but not enough faith. That doesn't work that way. James said faith without works is dead, and he's exactly right. But works does not play in salvation. Works has no part in our forgiveness. It is after God's free gift, accepted by faith, nothing more. We change. If we're the same creature, then nothing has happened. There is no born again. An acceptance of God's love, Paul says, brings peace. And if that peace does not come, then we have to question the authenticity of our relationship with God. Paul says, peace follows our justification. And in that peace, we want to live a new life. We don't want to displease God. We don't want to follow the old ways. So we do good works. Works follows reconciliation. It is not a means of reconciliation. Now the church is made up of human and so they've got off balance. Over the centuries they began to look at the works and said, well it looks a lot more practical to me that if we do the works then God can forgive us. If we just do nothing about it and say I accept it through faith, that's not fair to God. We ought to do something to earn it. So after a while the church began to move in the direction that we earn our salvation through works. And there came that time in the 16th century when the church had come to the point of saying works are so important in assuring us <laughs> our salvation. We can make some money off of that. Let's sell indulgences. Let's sell the good works of other people. If you don't have enough of your own, then buy somebody else's. And so that became the official stance of the church. Selling indulgences. You bought the good works of the saints and you didn't have to do them yourself. And a man named Tetzel in the early part of the 16th century made a name for himself going everywhere throughout the land taking money for indulgences. He had a line that he would cry out as a vendor would as your coins drop in the coffer, souls are released from purgatory. And people came and poured in their money in order to assure that those who had died now were released. And when I die, I will be released. A thief came up to Tetzel and said, Now you are saying that we can pay for our past sins through indulgences. But what about our future sins? Can we buy indulgences to assure that we are forgiven of our future sins? And Tetzel, seeing an opportunity to really make some money here, said, yes, 
I can save you indulgences for the sins you've committed as well as the sins that you will commit, but it'll cost you a thousand gold coins. So the thief went out and stole a thousand gold coins. <laughs> Bought his indulgence. Now he was forgiven all past sins and all future sins. And he turned around and stole the thousand gold coins back. <laughs> Well, this had been the official stance of the church. You can buy your freedom from the sins that imprison. And a monk by the name of Martin Luther was appalled. He had been questioning the theology of the church by many quarters, but seeing poor people hoodwinked in such a way as this, taking away their life savings with the idea that I can buy my salvation. And it was Paul's reaction against the selling of indulgences that brought about the Protestant Reformation. He said, Paul assured us that there is justification by faith alone. Not something to be bought, not something to be earned, and the church is forcing an earning way of salvation upon the people. And after the great debates, finally the church was separated into those who believed in justification by faith and those who believed in justification by works. In the Council of Trent, following Martin Luther's stand before his accusers, <clears throat> and established the Protestant church, the Council of Trent, 1545 to 1563, declared this statement in the aftermath of the Reformation. If anyone says that justification is by faith alone, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. Let him be excommunicated. That was how strongly the church felt. That justification does not come by faith, but comes by works. So, Martin Luther did not want to separate from his church. He wanted to heal the church. Unable to do that, separation came. And we have the Protestant church today, whose very foundation stone is, the just shall live by faith. That is Paul's assurance. James muddied the water. But he was misunderstood. What James really needed to articulate more clearly, it is once you have been justified by faith, then you must prove it by the works that you do. That was really what was in his mind. It had to be. So Paul assures us that we are reconciled to God by unmerited grace, but once we are saved, and we can do good works out of gratitude, out of love, out of the peace that God gives. Now, Paul wanted everyone to know that once this has taken place, then you can't just lie back in Elysian fields and say, now God is going to take care of me and I have no problems because now I am a follower of Christ. Paul said, you'll suffer. And he could speak out of experience because who suffered? more greatly than Paul himself, except for Christ upon the cross. 
and we have so taken the experience of Good Friday and put it in a poetic frame that we are not really aware of the fact that there was great suffering on that day. The passion of the Christ is being re-released for this season. <clears throat> but first, having had a lot of the scenes cut out, because there were more than people could handle seeing what really happened, we must remember what really happened in order to fully appreciate the cost of forgiveness to God, not to us. Grace is free to us, but it was costly to God. Paul says we must expect this suffering. And the time may come with the way in which the world is disintegrating about us. And I'm not a pessimist, but you've got to face reality. The time may come when we will suffer for our beliefs. Paul suffered for his greatly, beaten, stoned, threatened with death, and finally death for his beliefs. But he said, rejoice in your sufferings, because suffering is a means whereby you can you can develop character in your suffering and in your character you can develop hope and hope is fulfilled in God's grace hope not hopelessness hope is one of the results of suffering of character building that comes from being a father What a powerful lesson and what a time for it just between Palm Sundays and Good Friday. Now, I know you have some questions this morning because this is too far-reaching in its impact to have you say, I understand it all and I don't need to delve any deeper. So what questions do you have or some <coughs> observations that you would like to make? on today's lesson. Yes? Um, what you, I have heard it said that um, if you continue to feel guilty about something, then the person said it, um, then you don't really believe in what Jesus did. If you continue to not forgive yourself, I guess it's kind of what you're saying. Um, Please don't say I'm the most guilt-ridden person you'll ever meet. I'm sincere. I've told you incidents that took place early in my ministry. I was still carrying the guilt that I had to handle. You can be forgiven, but the pain that comes with it never leaves. It doesn't say that you're, you relinquish all pain. You're forgiven. But it's healthy to be guilty. You're able to slough it off. Pardon? You can be for, you can feel forgiven, but the pain is still there. Oh, yeah. We're not getting And if that's not true, then I've missed the boat somewhere. Because <laughs> I don't know anybody who can forgive <clears throat> of the past of my mistakes I've made, moments of temper. You can't bring back words once spoken in that circle. Good point. 